Welcome to the Humans of Learning Sciences. I'm your host, Dr. Monlin Monica Ko. The Learning Sciences is an interdisciplinary field that studies and supports learning in classrooms, after-school clubs, museums, and the outdoors. And while the learning scientists are united in their central commitment to trying to understand learning, there is a great diversity in how we do that work, and even in how we define learning. This podcast tries to take stock of and amplify these diverse perspectives. Our conversations will go beyond what you see on a website profile, CV, or scholarly publications. We want to dig deeper and understand the person who is behind the work. We'll ask questions like, what experiences formed your view of learning? How do you conceive of the learning sciences? And where do you think the field needs to go next? As your host, I'll be learning right along with you through these conversations and hope that they inspire even more dialogue about what it means to study and support learning. Join me on the Humans of Learning Sciences podcast. My guest today is Dr. Phil Vahey, the Director of Applied Learning Sciences at Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, or HMH. Prior to this role, he was the Director of Mathematics Learning Environments at SRI International's Center for Learning Technologies. There at SRI, he researched the use of dynamic technologies to help students learn difficult math concepts for over 20 years. If you've ever taught preschool children, you might be familiar with Early Math with Gracie and Friends or Early Science with Miko and Nora. Phil had a hand in creating both of these curricula and apps designed to support early mathematics and science learning. Here are two things that emerge from this conversation that I think are really worth paying close attention to. First, Phil talks about how he made his decision to go directly into a research institute right out of graduate school. Second, we discuss the different ways that we can think about making an impact as a learning scientist. We also discuss the challenges that arise when you work in interdisciplinary teams, even when you a priori seem to have shared goals and language about the problems that you want to address. We get to hear about the messy behind the scenes problem solving that is necessarily a part of what it means to work on hard problems. And we talk about the design trade-offs that you make as a result of alleviating those tensions. This is a particularly fascinating conversation for those of you who are interested in educational technologies and pursuing a career outside of academia. As always, email us with your comments and questions. The source materials will be linked in the episode description, and our email is humanslspod at gmail.com. Welcome to the podcast, Phil. Thank you. It's great to be here. Um, Phil, can you tell me a little bit about how you became interested in studying and designing and supporting mathematics learning? Yeah, that, that's great. Actually, learning science is, is my second career. Um, originally, I was a software engineer and then a software engineering manager for a product called FileMaker Pro um, back, in the, back in the good old days. This is the late 80s and the early 90s. And at that time, the idea that computers and technology could revolutionize people's lives was really coming into the mainstream. Right. And, and we're going more from computers as business technologies to computers as technologies that average people could use to, to make their lives better and more efficient. And FileMaker as a database that was created for kind of regular people, not database administrators, really helped bring that along. And I really enjoyed my work. I enjoyed the team and the work I was doing. But I also thought education should be able to harness some of this power as well. And at the time, there was some use of technology in education, but this was the days of the old CD-ROM-based enhanced books or a kind of quiz game software like Math Blaster. 
And it really seemed quite evident that technology could be used for a lot more than that. So at the time, I thought of switching careers into educational technology, but I also realized I didn't know anything about education. And having technologists stomping around in areas they don't know anything about typically doesn't have great results. So I lived in the San Francisco area at the time. So I actually got on BART from San Francisco to Berkeley, found the Berkeley School of Education. This was before Google Maps or smartphones. Um, and I learned that there was really interesting work going on in educational technology. Um, so I applied. I was accepted by Professor Bernie Gifford. Um, before that, he was the vice chancellor of New York City Schools. He was the VP of Apple Education. He was the previous dean of the Berkeley School of Education. And it was he who really brought UC Berkeley School of Education into the forefront of this work on innovative uses of, of learning technologies, which then kind of transitioned into being the learning sciences. Um, and so that really fit what I wanted to do. I was I wanted to use technologies in a way in classrooms that weren't yet being used to really advance how students could learn difficult to learn topics in math and science, for instance. And um, so that's what got me to UC Berkeley. So tell us a little bit about your time as a graduate student at Berkeley. I went there thinking that as someone who understood technology, I was going to work with people who understood education and create new and exciting things. And I found when I got there that there was so much work that was already happening with the use of technology in education. Um, for instance, just to name a few people, there was Barbara White had Synchro Tools, Marshall Lynn um, was early on in her inquiry environment, Andy DeSessa had Boxer, which was an early computational thinking environment, Alan Schoenfeld had a really innovative functions environment. Um, and so it wasn't that people didn't know how to harness technology in helping students better understand math and sciences. It, it seemed that there was this gap between what was going on in the halls of the university and in schools themselves. And so that's where I saw that I could perhaps have an impact. How do we get what we know from the universities into schools and into more into the mainstream? What was your sense of what the learning sciences was at that time? I think programs were kind of emerging, both in the United States and also internationally. But every sort of every school had a different flavor, depending on who the faculty were, with the different funding streams. So, at Berkeley, what was your sense of what learning sciences was about? Yeah, that's really interesting because again, it was even before it was called learning sciences, right? At the time, right? So we were learning a lot about cognition and how people learn. We're learning a lot about the affordances of technologies and to some extent representational technologies. There was a good amount of cross-cultural work of, on, on thinking and anthropological ethnographical work on how do different cultures think about mathematics in different ways. And definitely a lot of work on what does, what does it mean to do science? What does it mean to do mathematics? And then how can we bring that to life more in classrooms um, and typically but not always through the use of technologies so that was so it was really it was very interdisciplinary we were reading some psychology some cognitive science I touched a bit on the neuroscience but that was just emerging as well um, and a lot of ethnography anthropology all coming together to understand how can we impact schools and and classrooms and teachers in in ways that we to that point hadn't been able to 
Was there anything surprising or sort of memorable about your coursework or as you think back about your dissertation work? Any aha moments um, when you think about that relative to your experiences um, prior to going to graduate school? Yeah, there were a few. Um, some very specific, some more broad. And the more broad one is, as I said before, that I went there and was amazed by all the incredible work that was already happening in technology and how we could use representations in classrooms. And so it wasn't that there was a real gap in the research-based understanding of this. That research base was really interestingly far along at Berkeley alone. So there was, um, I was just incredibly impressed. There was also SimCalc was happening, which I ended up working on a lot um, when I got to SRI, right? So that was another fundamental rethink of how we can teach different aspects of mathematics that, that was ongoing. And so some of that work in terms of the broad framing of what do we know about how people learn and how technology can help students learn was really very eye-opening. There were um, definitely other areas that were more specific, like one that I remember just as a little class project that I had um, about, and I was asking students about mental computation. I forget exactly what it was, but you know, you, had, you have to buy eight of these and they cost 78 cents each and you have so much amount of money, do you have enough money, right? It was just this little tiny class project I did where I interviewed a few students. I had with me intentionally a little bag of the thing. I said, okay, well, the things are these, right? And let's put them in front of them. And their thinking snapped. It was just like they took the things and they started moving them around and grouping them. I'm like, wow, like, yeah, there's something to this embodied cognition stuff people are talking about, right? Like people really do think differently when they're engaging with the world than when they're just engaging, you know, a bunch of words hurled at them, right? Or a problem on a piece of paper hurled at them. And it really made clear the importance of providing scaffolds and representations to let people unleash their mathematical thinking. So that was really eye-opening to me in, in the way that your material circumstances could really fundamentally shift the way that you think about a problem. Right after graduate school, you started working at SRI. Tell us a little bit about what led to that decision and what drew you there. SRI, they were just starting a new program called the Center for Innovative Learning Technologies. Um, and that was a collaboration with SRI, UC Berkeley, Concord Consortium, Stanford University, and Vanderbilt University. And one of the goals of that, of that Center for Innovative Learning Technologies, or SILT, was to create these collaborations around important problems in education and also push them out into the world. And I was actually hired um, at the time by Roy P as the director of the um, Industry Alliance program, right? So how could we engage industry, either tech, ed tech industry or advanced technology industry in pushing forward? So to me, that was right aligned with what I wanted to do, right? Um, at SRI, you could and did, and I did keep my feet in the world of peer research, got funded by several National Science Foundation projects, several Department of Education projects, but also was always able to be looking outside as well and be working with external companies. And even within SRI, most of the work that at least I did, um, with, with of course a bunch of people collaborating, was on how do we move these 
technologies, these, these ways of learning, these types of activities into classrooms that aren't just your super user, super excited teachers, but you can actually go into a district and provide district-based training and have a large number of teachers and students using your materials. And, um, and I thought that was easier to do at SRI than academia at the time, right? Um, right now, things are a little bit different. Um, it is recognized that researcher practitioner partnerships are an important part of um, educational research and design-based implementation research is, is a recognized field of research. But at the time, because the field was so new, a lot of what was happening in academia was this sort of more pure research of, of advancing forward what we know about student cognition, about supporting thinking. And there was a less focus on change in the classroom. And that's what SRI allowed me to do, is keep a foot in both worlds. So tell me a little bit about SRI. And I know that things might have for sure have changed probably over the years. It seems like it was a place where you were trying to translate and implement and build more infrastructure for actually forgetting what we know about learning into classrooms. So I'm just curious about how you would describe the infrastructure there and what it was like to do research. One thing that really made it quite unique was in order to survive and thrive, we had to have large collaborative projects where often in academia, the focus is on individuals getting tenure. And so a lot of projects tend to be led by an individual PI and kind of has their real stamp on it. Um, and there's great work that comes from that, right? Um, but at SRI, if a project could be done by a professor and two grad students, then that's who was gonna get the funding to do it because we didn't have graduate student labor, right? And we, we, it's just the whole infrastructure was different. So many of our projects required that we have a known expert in evaluation, a known expert in assessment, a known expert in design of technology and a known expert in teacher professional development working together in a way that would have been really hard to do in academia, especially at the time. Right? It was hard to get a bunch of professors to realize that they don't have, they, they don't make all the calls, right? Other people are going to make a lot of the calls and a lot of the decisions have to be jointly decided upon, right? So your, your research agenda might get sent a little bit askew based on the things that are really happening in the world or what the evaluation team can do or what the teacher professional development is capable of achieving. And so that to me was an exciting part of SRI is that we really did need to be working across these different areas of education, sometimes also across areas of education with advanced technologies like speech technologies or others, um, in, in order to do our work. And that led to more impactful work. You, were, you tend to be working right, with larger numbers of teachers and students and, and bringing together these different areas of expertise. Another interesting aspect of SRI um, just in terms of the general environment of working there. SRI was very supportive of, as people matured in their role, proposing and writing their own, um, their own grant proposals, right? And it wasn't an anything goes kind of way. It's not just people could just start writing them because SRI does have this large infrastructure of our budget people and our legal people and intellectual property people. And you had to get yourself put into that pipeline um, 
And so within our group, when an opening was coming, National Science Foundation released an RFP with such and such a deadline, we would often have a formal or quasi-formal sort of pitching period. Um, but it wasn't that we had the one or two people, the two leads would write all the proposals and then would parse out the work as it came in. In our situation, relatively junior people were encouraged to come up with ideas for proposals. Um, they might not get approved to, to actually even write the proposal the first time around, but they might get um, connected with another more senior person who had a related idea. And so their idea could become a subpart to just kind of collect some initial data. Um, it could be that the idea just was not gonna make it, it just was not mature enough an idea to go this year, but let's start working on next year's version. Like what do we need to do to, to make this a viable proposal next year? And um, so with that, it was really an exciting place in that way that as a junior person, you could really have impact on the research that was happening. Um, and again, that's, I don't think that's true of all independent research organizations. So I would say that people should ask, right? Like what, what's the process for writing grant proposals? What's the, for who can be PI and who can't be PI, right? Um, different, different organizations tend to have different kind of a different infrastructure around those things. I wanted to dig, dig into your work, part of your work that you did while you were at SRI. Um, you published a paper in the International Journal of Designs for Learning. Uh, the title is called uh, The Evidence-Based Curriculum Design Framework, Leveraging Diverse Perspectives in the Design Process. In the paper, you talk about some really interesting tensions and messiness of that design work. Tell us a little bit about how that project was conceived and key players at the table. So in the Next Generation Preschool Math Project, we wanted to create an early education tablet-based app to help young children understand key aspects of mathematics that are often not taught in preschool, but are known to be foundationally important. So in our case, we chose equipartitioning, which is dividing things into equal groups, which is kind of the foundation of division, fractions, the whole aspect of mathematics, and something called subitizing, which is foundational to understanding number. Um, subitizing is this act of saying, seeing three dots and being able to say three without having to count one, two, three. You can see three and it is three. And that seems like an odd thing to teach. It seems like maybe it's not even teachable, but there was research that showed that in fact it was teachable. And not only is it teachable, it's important because young children chant a lot of things. They chant the days of the week. They chant the alphabet. They chant the months. They chant the numbers. And there's no reason for them to think that chanting the numbers is different than chanting the days of the week, right? But it's really important that three is two away from five, which is not something you'd say about the days of the week. Wednesday is Monday away from Friday or something, right? Like it just doesn't make any sense. Right. And so this notion of you can get to three without having to chant it. Three is always three. Right. Is, is a key part of subitizing. It really helps build students number sense. Um, and we chose tablets. I mentioned tablets because for young children, mice and keyboards are not the best. We're talking about four or five year olds and, and tablets were not quite new, but relatively new for being used with young children at the time. And so our goal was to create a set of games and resources that could be used by preschool teachers that would be engaging enough to be downloaded by parents and just used and played by their children, 
but would also result in demonstrable learning that like we could run experiments and show that students really did learn these core mathematical ideas. And um, typically work is done on two of those three at best, right? Often just one, right? And all three, getting all three that they're engaging enough for parents to just use that teachers can in fact pick them up and they fit in their classroom routines with other scaffolds and other materials. And they really result in student learning, right? Is a not easy thing to go about. And so that's why we got the funding for it because we knew it wasn't easy, it wasn't going to be easy. And there were a good number of, you know, edutainment games up on the app stores at that time. There's also a lot of research showing that they didn't really result in learning. They were, you know, possibly better than your four-year-old watching episodes of SpongeBob, <laughs> but they were not going to result in your students learning a whole bunch of mathematics or science, for instance. So tell me a bit about what it was like to work with an interdisciplinary team on this problem. We really brought together learning scientists, curriculum designers, early childhood experts, professional development experts, and early childhood game designers into one project to kind of create these materials that could satisfy all those criteria. And, you know, we went into the project with a great team. We knew each other. Um, we're excited about working together. We collaborated on the proposal. When we started the proposal, the research team would um, write these little research briefs on what does active partitioning mean? How do we do it? What do we want it? What does supervising mean? Things quickly really got much messier than expected. Um, and it wasn't smooth sailing at all, even though we'd done all this pre-work, right? Of collaborating on the proposal, working together on these kind of research briefs. And, you know, we realized that we all thought we were speaking the same language, right? But actually our expectations were really, really different in, in what, what these could look like and what we would expect. And part of this was, is your focus on the learning or is your focus on fun slash engagement? And everyone, when they say that, and your listeners right now are all thinking, but you don't have the trade-off, you can do both. And yes, that was the premise of the program, right? Like that, yes, you can have both. But as it turns out that having both isn't sort of trivial, <laughs> right? It's really quite difficult. And part of it right. is your focus on what you're designing for and what you're looking for. All right, so um, for instance, the research, the, all the different teams would work together and the game designers would put this into a game. And then we describe in the paper this kind of quick turnaround time for user testing. Right? And so we would have user tests happening in three locations at the same time. We'd have them in the San Francisco Bay area, in the Massachusetts, Boston area, and in the New York City area, done by different groups, right? Um, different teams are located in different places. And interestingly, we didn't even realize this at first, we all were seeing even these different populations and we intentionally chose different populations of students, suburban students, students in primary Latino communities, students in primary black communities, for instance. And so we did, we wanted to get that kind of wide variation. And the broad strokes of what we saw tended to be quite similar actually across the different groups, but how the groups interpreted it was incredibly different. And so we would, all be running our user tests at about the same time and then talk at the end of that week on what we saw. And multiple times early on, the game designers would be truly ex like so excited and say, oh my God, the kids loved it. That was great. 
they, you couldn't even get the iPad out of their hands at the end of the session and they were laughing and they were showing the screen to their friends. My God, that was like, that was such, this is such a great game. And the people in the research teams in the other parts of the country would be like, yeah, <laughs> there was absolutely nothing related to the learning goals ever happened ever. Like, yes, they really did enjoy popping bubbles, right? But that's what they did. Like, we could just give them a bubble popping game, right? And that would, it would be fine. It would be the exact same output. And so this idea of how do we merge those two views, right? And say, okay, yes, these are the fun aspects of it. The students really like, how do we not lose that, but still make a game that focuses as they engage in the activities, are the mathematical ideas even emergent to them? Can they even sense that they're there? And so that was a big part of like the, the process that we developed and the, pa- the resulting paper was how, how did we come to alignment on those things? Yeah, so walk us through some of the tools or processes that you use to actually get on the same page. How did you create common language for that design process that sort of upheld the affective, but also the learning um, goals that you all had? we created a pretty detailed learning blueprint, which kind of walked through. Here's not only equity partitioning is this general definition, which is sort of what we had started with, um, but here are different aspects of it. Here's different ways students could engage in it. Here's what a progression looks like as one gets more fluent in equity partitioning and similar with supervising. Here are easy supervising activities. Here are harder supervising activities. Here's what it looks like the transition from one to the other. And at that point, it helped in that we could all come to agreement and the game designers could point to a thing and say, okay, this is what we're going for, right? And then we would all in fact agree that, oh, that thing did or didn't happen. There were other times when the designers were thrilled and we were like, that was ridiculous. Like nothing useful happened. I mean, yes, they did the thing, but that was so not useful. We did not know, and we were not really properly informed that, yes, this was, in fact, an equity partitioning game, but that what the developers really wanted to know was, could the students, like, use the iPad flat and move ice cubes around the board, because, like, could they use that as a game mechanism, right? So they were just simply testing a mechanism, right? But we weren't really aware of that. They just told us this was going to be an equity partitioning game where you move ice cubes around, and then we still know equity partitioning. Um, and so even that learning blueprint let them say, we're not on the learning blueprint. This is a pure mechanism test, right? We don't care. We just want to see, can they do it? Like, oh, okay. Then we'll, we will look for that as well. And so by having the learning blueprint, it put everybody on a more equal footing. There's some areas in which the game designers and developers could actually do that to argue against some of our arguments. Like for instance, in one game, they wanted the students, the students, they were young children, four-year-olds, to use the iPad to take pictures of each other so their faces could appear on little characters on the screen. And then your, your character would be in a little car and it would zoom off once you completed it. And they were, you know, and kids are thrilled by that. And I'm like, it's taking a really long time. And they're not, like, like half the time is in doing that, all right? Um, but, as the designers pointed out, once they did it, they were willing to play that game from level to level to level to level. They were just so much more engaged with the stuff because they liked seeing their faces in different activities and liked seeing what happened, that they would just simply play the game more and be more focused 
on it and less distracted. So that was the way that they could say, yes, they are spending time not on the learning blueprint, but once they do that, look at them go through this learning blueprint, right? And so it was, that was a really useful way. And again, things were not then ideal after that, but at least we, we knew what we were, our conflicts were about, right? Whereas before that, it was, we weren't even talking the same language to understand why we're each being frustrated with the other. I've had similar experiences on these very large projects where we all do have some shared goals, but then when it comes to the actual design and the interpretation of what was actually happening, whether or not that matched our expectations or the purposes for which we were designing, those were some of the most challenging conversations because um, that's when sort of things get pulled back and you say, where do we invest our time? You know, what do we work on separately and to also together? Um, but I think that's where some of the interesting learning happens, at least, uh, you know, from my perspective, right? Um, that you, you need to have shared working language to um, work toward a common goal and that that takes time, that no matter what you have a priori coming into this, that some of that needs to be worked out in the nitty gritty details. Yes, it's one of those things that's interesting, right? Because that's obvious. People would say, well, yes, of course, that's obvious. And it's until you're doing it. It's like, oh, I thought we'd done that, yet still, right? Now, it's until you're in it, right, that you're really realizing what other people's perspectives are and what their goals are. And it does, I think, when new teams are forming that are cross-disciplinary, I think it necessarily must be a little bit messy at first, because you can try to anticipate these things, but until you're actually doing the work, Right, it, 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 you can't anticipate how it will all come out. Um, another, another interesting one there where there was an, a nice compromise that again we write about in the paper is um, going back to the ice cube game. Where, where they made the ice cube moving games that was a genuine equity partitioning activity. Um, and what happened was it was things called lemonade stand, and you had some number of ice cubes, and you want to get them into your lemonade cups. Um, by, by moving them around. And you want to give each lemonade cup, each cup an equal number of ice cubes so it's fair to everybody. Um, and then as the game got more difficult in two different dimensions, one was the actual equipartitioning that had to happen, right? The number of cups, the number of ice cubes. And one was in pure game mechanics. There were suddenly ladybugs on the screen. And if a ladybug went into a cup, the round was over because you ruined somebody's drink. Or there were gaps in the screen, so that would fall to the ground. And if that falls to the ground, then the game is over. And they put those in um, in order to increase engagement. So that way students had a different challenge, which was fine. That was one of those areas where like, yeah, well, you could do it without any of those, but then the kids would just play for three rounds, be bored and put it down, right? So by having these challenges, students are more engaged, more willing to play and will get exposed to the more difficult levels. Which made sense until we realized that there was a huge drop off when the level got particularly difficult. And, but we had confounded the difficulty of the mathematics with the difficulty of the game mechanics. They both went along the same trajectory. Mm. So then we had a very different conversation because the game design was like, but yes, some kids stop, but a lot of kids keep going and they want to get through that and they want, they want to push on. So like if we get rid of these more complex things then students will just stop from boredom, they won't have this challenge. But we framed it as an equity issue, students that, give up because of this external factor, we'll never get exposed to these more difficult aspects of mathematics that we want them to figure out, 
right? So how do we, so what we agreed on was that, and, but, and we realized some of the earlier activities in, in the game were a bit easier than we thought. So we kind of accelerated the more difficult math. So they got up to the more difficult math and we both accelerated the more difficult math and delayed the time that these other um, barriers got put in. And so that way, all students had the opportunity to get through the difficult math, which what was according to our user testing and the actual um, tracking data that we got was reasonable. Man, yeah, those, those challenges and tensions are really, really interesting. You know, in all of your years of doing this, of designing, working across in these interdisciplinary teams, designing technologies, is there like a litmus test that you have when you look at a design in terms of trying to gauge or suss out whether or not learning goals were at the forefront of the design process? Just because as a parent, I see so many things that look on the face of it, very engaging, right? And then you watch, you watch a young person engaging with the tool and you're like, why, you know, oh, they're, they're uh, rewarding that, or, oh, it's interesting that that's the next level. Is there a, you know, something you can put a finger on when you look at an app um, that helps that, that you look for when you think about having learning goals sort of at the center of its design? Yeah, that's interesting. I'm not sure that there's a simple, like, you know, you can do a retinal scan of something and look at it and say, yeah, that does, right? I, I think it's some of the, very much some of the aspects you're talking about. When feedback is provided, what does the feedback lead you to, right? Um, are ideas building on each other in a way? And, and sometimes, like with some of the edutainment apps, um, we did an analysis of many of them, and this is a while ago, so you know, things may have changed, may not have as well. Um, like math-based games would just move between concepts, not only between concepts, but between levels of concepts. Like it would be very simple addition type things, or very simple you know, number identification over here, and then really sophisticated geometric challenges over here. And like, that should not follow this. Like there's not, like, you know, like, they were done, they were clearly made by people who did some research into what is, what do people want from educational materials, but didn't really like, you know, bust out the Clements book on young children's learning trajectories in mathematics or whatever it was. And, and so that's why I think it, it, I don't think there's an easy test in that way. Like you really do have to say, okay, what are they, as you're saying, what are they rewarding and what are they providing feedback on? Do the, as students advance, are the levels appropriately challenging and leading them to new mathematical thinking and new ideas or new scientific thinking and new ideas? Um, and I'd say, you know, those, those do take a little bit of thought, right? And a little bit of work to determine. So one thing that you've been talking about, um, maybe implicitly, is an awareness that what you're designing for is not just a standalone app or a tool but that you're designing for a system of activities that includes the app, but also teachers, students, potentially other adults who are facilitating the learning. Why is it so important to be thinking about the system in which that tools to be actually embedded in the system or to be taken up in the long term? Why is that so key? And also, like, how does that make you think a little bit differently about the design process? What has to be in place? when you think about a system and not just a tool? 
Yes, yes, and that, and you're right. We that is very important in a lot of the work we do. Um, and in the SimCalc, as well as what we just talked about, the next generation preschool math, and other work we did with middle school mathematics, based on the early SimCalc work by Jim Cap and Jeremy Rochelle and others, you quickly realize that you don't you can't even say education is a system. It's kind of a system of systems, right? You have teacher-student interactions. Right, I'm teacher, a student, or a small group of students, right, and that's going to mediate how your materials are used all the time. Then you have the whole classroom interactions, right? And how how do teachers interact with the whole classroom system? Then teachers are living in their own system of their school, their principal, their administration. We've got not only teachers but the school themselves are held to these accountability systems. Um, they're held to cultural debates about what education should or could be, um, which are even more prevalent now in some ways, but they've all, they're always there. There's issues around teacher workload. How much more can you expect teachers to actually do than they're already doing? So you might have something much that everyone knows is better, but teachers are already overworked. So what does that mean to say, and all we're asking is another 10 hours a week from you, right? Like, right, there's this notion of analysis paralysis. Once you start thinking about it that way, you can just get paralyzed. Oh my God, I can't do anything. Um, that, that's not the point, but the point is that if you ignore the complexity, you're, you're not going to get good results. It is highly likely that materials won't be used at all. Maybe worse than that, depending on your perspective, is this notion of what Anne Brown a long time ago called lethal mutations, where people act like they're doing your thing, but they're actually not doing your thing at all. You just need to really understand it. Um, and so if you're not understanding the system you're in, you have a chance of your stuff not being used or being used in a way that is actually opposite of what you'd like. I'd like to transition to thinking about big takeaways that you had from your, I think, 20-year stint at SRI mm -hmm. and now thinking about your work at H HMH. What's the reason for that shift and how, how is the work that you do at HMH maybe similar mm -hmm. or different because I think a lot of us think about HMH as a curriculum shop. And so I'm curious about how the work that you did at SRI mm -hmm. connects to all of your different endeavors now um, at HMH. We came up with this notion of a curricular activity system where we did focus primarily on the classroom interaction. So I talked about all these systems within systems, but we made sure that we understood teachers' accountability um, requirements, for instance, and we also work with the districts to understand the professional development opportunities and requirements and constraints. And so we worked within this idea in order to get some SimCalc-like work with interactive dynamic representations into the classroom. And in so doing, we work with teachers to understand what's the length of a lesson, what could they do within a lesson. For those who needed homework, what kind of homework did they find would be useful? A lot of teachers required a warm-up question, um, and we were sort of against warm-up questions in a way, but we realized teachers were using that time to take attendance, right? And so they really had that as part of their classroom routine. And so then how could we make warm-up questions that aligned with our overall curricular philosophy was a question that we had to take in chance because we realized when we didn't give them one, they made up their own and their <laughs> own were right. often actually in conflict with what we wanted to have happen that day. Mm. Right. And so it, it, we did have to take into account this whole system. And even then, right, one can be surprised. 
right? So like as an example of that, what I mean by is we'd been working with the district administrators, school teachers to ensure that our activities would fit all the requirements. And what we didn't know was that along the way, some schools started requiring that teachers write today's objective on the board before the class started. So the reason this ended up being important to us was we had many activities that were purely sort of exploratory to build students' intuitions. So for instance, during the day, the students would take a interactive position time graph, modify the slope, make predictions about what the characters on screen would do, run it and see what the characters on screen would do, and have them make races and predict what would happen in the race. Could you make a race this person would win? Could you make a race they'd win by this amount? But the overall idea was to build the intuition for that day that on this type of graph, a steeper slope means a faster speed. And then they would quickly to themselves, often by the end of that one period, start asking themselves, but wait, how much faster? How fast are they going? How can I determine that? And that was our lead into the next class of, okay, slope is not some weird equation on the board with a bunch of triangles and X's and Y's on it. Slope is this really important thing, mathematical thing that you have a vested interest in. You care how fast is this character going, how fast they're going compared to that character. Who would win? What happens if you have a head start? Hmm. Well, when teachers start the class with, in this lesson, you will learn that a steeper line is the same as a steeper slope, and that means a faster character, right? And because that's, that's our learning objective for the day, which it was our learning objective for the day. Right. Students are wildly unengaged with the activity at that point. You just told them what they're supposed to find out, right? And then it's very different reading that on the board than experiencing it for yourself and figuring it out for yourself. Right. So we realized students weren't building their intuitions at all. They were just kind of playing, right? And because they had no need to build their intuition, someone told them, they, That's right. this is the thing I'm going to write down. The, the very last question asked this, I'm going to write down what's on the board and I'm good. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's a way in which because we continue to interact with the system, we found that out pretty quickly. Um, and from observations that we we're doing and from talking with teachers, we found this happened. And so we then scurried to make for those teachers who needed to put the learning goals, what are learning goals that are consistent with our learning philosophy that meet their needs. So the learning goal in that case would be something like today you will investigate the relationship between the steepness of the line and characters' motions. Mm -hmm. They agreed. That was a perfectly fine learning goal. That fit what their principal required. You could put it on the board. Everyone understood it. And it still allowed them to engage with our materials. So that's a really simple way, a really simple example of how if you're not engaged with the system, you could really get kind of these negative effects. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can you remember a case, an example, where um, there was an you just talked about an unexpected interaction, right? Or I guess, you know, sort of the realization that putting up the learning goals sort of thwarted the the actual intended use of the tool. Um, I think something that I think about all the time is sort of like, you know, when you change tools and you want them to be used in systems, you're, you have to build teachers' capacities and students' capacities mm -hmm. to use that tool. And I wonder how much you wrestle with sort of that capacity building work versus sort of the app refinement work? You know, like, does that ever bring interesting tensions into your work in terms of how much support does a teacher need to support this very meaningful mathematics learning?
Do you know what I mean? Yes, I, 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 I do know what you mean. And part of it, too many math teachers feel that if students are struggling, they must have done something wrong, where about a third of our activities are all about students engaging in struggle, right? What you could call preparation for future learning. You could call it productive struggle. It has multiple names, but the notion is that these are actually difficult concepts to wrestle with. And by someone just telling you the concept, you will have forgotten it within 24 to 48 hours. Whereas if you do struggle and have that moment yourself, and it's, it's deeply ingrained in your, the activities you've been doing and these investigations you've been making, you will carry that with you for long. It might take a bit longer, but you also then more deeply understand the idea. And so that's an area that has always been a struggle with our teachers, um, especially the middle school teachers, where we show them, for one thing, we had to create activities towards the end that were very, looked very much like traditional activities. And the idea was, we don't expect students, like in the activity I told you before with the graph motions, they will never come up with either the word slope or the slope equation. They might come up with the slope equation some, but really probably not and definitely not the arbitrary things like the words slope right that's just a mathematical convention so we would have a sort of wrap-up activity after a day or two that looked like a traditional math classroom but it would be their almost intro traditional math classroom it would just be our outro here are the words here's the formal definition here's the equation here's what it means here's how it related to what you just did and so it would wrap up the mathematics for them um, instead of leading with the mathematics and having them practice. Hmm. And for many teachers, but not all, that was fine. And they could say, okay, it's okay. I'm going to tell them tomorrow. It's okay if they're struggling now, because I know I get to tell them tomorrow. Um, but for some teachers, even that is just very, very difficult. Having the students struggle is just something that they're not quite comfortable with. So that's an area of capacity building that it would be, that I think just more still does need to be done somehow, but, mm -hmm. um, but that's an example, for instance, mm -hmm. of we did have to ensure our teachers that we were going to get to the regular math, so to speak, or the traditional math, that we just took a different path mm -hmm. to get there. A lot of times in materials, all the important teacher questions are embedded in the teacher guide, and the people kind of expect the teachers to be wandering the classroom with their teacher guide, and, or, or having remembered the important questions. But that's really not the case that is what we found. So in our Sunday materials, they weren't, we didn't have questions in the environment. The environment tended to be um, pretty much a kind of interactive sort of simulation type environment. We did actually have printed books. Um, mm -hmm. If we were to do it again now, that, that, that was well before there was one-to-one. -one. So often three students have to be at a single computer, for instance, right? This is clearly, this is years pre-pandemic. So if your classroom had a computer for three kids, you're in pretty good shape. Some classrooms had to buy technology to allow even that. So, and we were fine. We actually built the activity so students would work together at the computer. That, that wasn't a problem. Students sharing a screen wasn't a problem. In fact, I think it might be more of a problem now that we don't expect students to share representations and talk about them. Um, but students would then write in their own books. And so while we didn't embed questions in the technology environment, if a question was important, it went in the student guide, mm. right? And that was really um, one of the key lessons that we had. If a question's important, it goes in the student guide, mm -hmm. right? Um, 
And, you know, again, and that wasn't coming from me. Um, a lot of this work was done with colleagues who are now at Turk, um, Jennifer Knudsen and today Salah Malloy and Ken Rafanan and Jeremy Rochelle was also part of this work the whole time. And that really came from our people that, you know, and Jennifer and others really understood the world of teachers. Right. Right. And, and that this is important because they don't walk around with it. We gave them a teacher guide, but they're not going to walk around the classroom with it typically. And I think if I remember you saying, and I can't remember if it's in this uh, chapter, the curricular activity system chapter or in the other piece, but that, you know, putting those questions inside student materials is trying to guarantee that the students will somehow at some point engage mm -hmm. with those questions, but that it's up to the teacher in terms of how they actually get to that point that there's that sort of agency on the part of the teacher in deciding when those questions should be posed, but that um, having it on the student, in the student materials um, sort of puts their feet to the fire to actually get to those questions. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, you did a lot of this work while you were at SRI, um, but now you're the lead of, of the Applied Learning Sciences work um, at uh, Houghton Mifflin. And mm -hmm. so I'm curious about what you what you bring with you from um, your years at SRI and how the work at HMH differs um, and builds on that work. Because I think maybe a lot of people have been in classrooms where Houghton Mifflin was, is the curriculum mm -hmm. shop that generates the books that they use. Um, and so I'm curious about the, yeah, one, what you bring from your SRI work over to HMH, and then two, what does it mean to do learning sciences work now at HMH? Mm -hmm. In terms of what is it like to go from SRI to a Houghton Mifflin, and isn't Houghton Mifflin a large textbook publisher? So what does learning sciences have to do with that? Um, Houghton Mifflin, pre-pandemic, they had the foresight to know that the affordances of technology and being able to, by having so many different um, learning environments, we have to bring them into one place and connecting them could lead to a much richer student and teacher environment. So like I said, even pre-pandemic, they were moving all their materials into an online platform called Ed, um, Connected Technology Platform. And right now we're in, we have been doing and are still engaging in how do we now level that up and really take advantage of the affordances of technology in our materials. And that's both within a particular product as we now are revising our materials, how do we take more advantage of the interactions and of the representations that technology gives, as well as how do we connect across platforms? If I'm in our, my math curriculum over here, can I determine what different students are struggling with or could use more support in and send them off to a very particular game from this other product that mm -hmm. actually will support them in, in learning this. And it might be that different students at different times in the curriculum need different supports. And as a large curriculum provider, traditionally, we have not only multiple curricula, but also multiple supplemental materials and intervention materials, mm -hmm. right? So how can we bring all that to bear? To help teachers and students. And so that's a big part of the learning sciences work. It's both in the individual products, as we're revising, as we're refining, sometimes creating new, what are the ways we can leverage technology to make our materials not just really, you know, when you get the PDF version of textbooks and they're, and they're put under the screen, it's actually more impoverished in many ways. The idea is not 
to try to replicate it was potentially lost, but how can we modify it to take advantage? And sometimes that results in formatting. And every, instead of all this material being on one page, it's gonna, how, can we break it up? But then when we ask these questions, can we ask the questions differently? Can we put interactives in? Can we provide feedback to students? That's a lot of the work there. A lot of what I've learned is useful there and a lot of what can we really expect teachers to be able to do and students to be able to do is useful. Um, another area that I was surprised about as, as a big difference, um, and it's not a negative thing, in many ways it's a positive thing, um, but it was surprising, is that HMH is responsible for creating materials that are accessible to students with a wide range of disability, with neurodiverse groups of students, with different cultural and language backgrounds, with past schooling experience, positive, negative, or even traumatic, um, and all these things, and all their materials have to run on a wide range of devices, right. right? including schools with horrible to no internet. And so once you take all that into account, learning sciences is one thing of many, right, that has to be accounted for. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the activities that was already happening when I, when I um, joined HMH and I got deeply involved in is an effort to say, what are commonalities when we look at universal design for learning and support for multilingual learners and support for social emotional learning, as well as the learning sciences, as well as having diversity and equity in representations of people in our materials and of problem situations in our materials. It's working across this group of really smart, dedicated people to say, what are the commonalities? So that way we don't have, you know, learning sciences has this five page checklist that you should check off and the equity inclusion diversity has their other checklists you should check off and universal design for learning people have their checklist of things that, that, wow. that dilutes and kind of destroys all of these different, the intent of all of these different perspectives. Mm -hmm. So how do we come together and come up with a, a set of understandable bound sort of principles that people should be using as they're designing. So that, that's something that was very unexpected. And like, they're not negative mm -hmm. at all um, because there are things come up that I just wouldn't think of from a pure learning science perspective that, that come from some of these other groups. And so give me, give me a sense of what those overarching <clears throat> statements look like. What's the grain size? Yeah, I get that learning science is one perspective and we can foreground a number of things. But when we try to think mm -hmm. about commonalities and threads with these other perspectives. What are you looking for? How does that get sort of embodied or materialized in the actual products? That's an active conversation that we have. Um, you know, and I've been at HMH for just about a year now. And, um, and our materials are, have been designed often with these different perspectives in mind. So like teacher's guides will have, here's the multilingual learner fallout, here's the social emotional learning fallout, you'd hope the learning science is baked in. And here's the accessibility, right, alternative, right, you know, things like that. And that's what we're trying to move from to this mm -hmm. more general. So we're struggling with those very questions mm -hmm. right now. So for instance, we can all agree that you want to base learning activities on um, experiences that are of interest and applicable to students from different backgrounds, right? But then the culturally responsive education folks would be, except not stereotypical, right? Like, yes, but of course not stereotypical, right? Like, of course that should be the case. But 
it's through realizing that and you know how should feedback be delivered and how sh how can we support students who may have had a negative experience in math or science right so when we create these environments these experiences that are so it's we're at that level right now is what is you know what are some core um stakes we can put in the ground mm. right and so for instance one of them is also and ensure like as we talk about these things have activities that a wide number of students can relate to and preferably have had experiences in right is one be positive you know be support in an emotionally positive way right i'm saying we also need one that specifically is ensure that rigorous learning standards are upheld too right so we're not trying to say well by having materials that relate to students from a wide number of cultural backgrounds that is not to dilute out the rigorous learning that actually can often give you more insight more ways into rigorous learning right. but it's important to always keep that in mind as well and so um udl like principles are sort of built in ensure students have multiple ways into the materials and multiple ways to represent themselves right you know udl is universal design for learning yeah. um and so those are the bounds that we're trying to come up with and then how do we represent those internally to our design teams and externally to teachers yeah. we're finding that it is important that we find a coherent way to express these important frameworks so all our materials can be based on them and teachers understand that and can enact it i wanted to ask about um maybe just stepping back a little bit from your current work just just from your perspective, whether or not you see what you see as shifts sort of in the learning sciences and the design of technology since you've been in graduate school, what mm -hmm. has changed in the learning sciences in terms of what we know about the design of educational technologies, how to support educational technology use in classrooms? Just curious if there are sort of things that stand out to you as major shifts or trends in the field. Yeah, so in terms of changes or advancements in the field of learning sciences since I was in graduate school those many years ago. Um, there is a lot more sophistication in different ways of thinking about um, how students learn and how to support teachers in teaching. And a lot of that comes through things like research or practitioner partnerships, design-based implementation research. Um, and those have been really exciting areas to see advance, I'd say, as this idea that the moving from the sciences of learning sciences to the engagement in classroom is it, it's a non-trivial move right and and as part of that of course there's now the field of learning engineering um which some different people have different kind of definitions of exactly what that means and um we're in the process right now we have an open position for and we'll soon be interviewing some potential candidates in a position that we're calling learning engineering and it's work on these areas of like for instance sophisticated data analytics and what can we say about what students know and can do based on their behaviors and systems and that's another area that's been really much more advanced there's of course just a lot of technology um enhancements so people have always been talking about virtual reality but um but that's becoming more real now than it was and augmented reality is an area I personally think will have more benefits than pure virtual reality. And that is really quite a new field. Um, 
And the reason I say augmented reality can really have a chance to make large strides is a big part of the work that's been happening that I do and others do in this area of, of interactive and dynamic representations is really making the invisible visible, which is mm-hmm. a phrase that's probably common to most of your listeners at this point. But a lot of the advancements in mathematics and science are about creating representations that let us literally see or hear things that are otherwise imperceptible, right? And as we get to augmented realities, as students are doing their lab, their their traditional chemistry lab, can there be something where the sensors are all built in, feeding in, and you're actually seeing the chemical compounds change as they change? As you see colors change in your beaker, can you actually see the change that's happening to the chemical compound representation, Mm. for instance? Or as you're running physics labs, right? what are the kind of representations you can see about forces in motion that you can literally see as you're running things, which we can't see? now in real time. And so this area of augmented reality being a huge step forward in what many of us have been trying to do in these interactive dynamic representations of making evident to people the underlying mathematics and science. There could really be, um, it'll be interesting to see how, how, how well that plays out. And for you personally, sort of what, what keeps you sort of excited about this work? Um, you know, for folks who are kind of dipping their toes in it, either in grad school or thinking about sort of their career, what's the thing that keeps you interested and excited and curious about where learning sciences will go next or what impact the learning sciences will have on on mathematics learning? Um, An area that I'd love to see advance more in the, in the learning sciences is where we can have a sort of intersection between what we know about embodied cognition and collaboration and what's now very personalized learning. There's a lot of work in personalized learning systems, and sometimes it gets like this kind of hyper-personalized focus that it's not clear that that's always the way to go. The, the problems that society is facing, that mathematicians face, that scientists face, tend to be highly collaborative. They need a lot of input from a lot of different perspectives. So how do we both leverage what we know about personalized learning to increase collaboration? I think a bit of that's going on. And how do we better understand how to move fluidly between these different types of learning, problem solving, engaging with problems, engaging with others? So that way we know what are the implications of going to person to a personalized system now? How do we bring that back to the group? What does that look like? So I, I think that is, is very important. That's great. How do you think about making an impact as a learning scientist? Um, I think there's a lot of people who come into this field wanting to affect change, um, but there's various ways to think about it. And I'm curious from your perspective, how do you think about the impact that you make on the world um, with your training, with your work? So when I think about the impact I want to make in learning sciences, as we've discussed, it does tend to be direct classroom-based impact. That's not the only possible impact learning scientists can make, but I'm talking from that perspective, from someone that wants to be making changes in the classroom and what happens in the day-to-day educational activities. And one way I've come to think about it is in a lot of the 
more learning sciences-based kind of research or smaller scale research, often NSF funds, I would say smaller scale, you could be impacting tens, hundreds, maybe thousands. Um, we had a Department of Education investing in innovation project that over its four years impacted approximately 100,000 students. Um, and for those students, we were able to do a lot, take over classrooms for the most part, at least a few weeks per year of classroom and really provide the learning environment, train the teachers. And for those students, we'd like to think at least that we had a very large impact, but that very large impact was, you know, tens to hundreds of students, it's a relatively small number, even 100,000 students is a relatively small number compared to the 50 million K-12 students we have, and that 100,000 students over four years, for instance, right? So for each of those students, we had a relatively large impact, um, which you can consider like an area under the curve, right? And the curve goes out for the number of students you have, how, how tall is each bar for each student. When you start thinking more on a broader scale, like working at Houghton Mifflin, it's small incremental changes here. But you're impacting literally millions of students. So while if you look at your curve, while for each student, that bar might not be very high, the cumulative under the area under the curve gets big very quickly when the number of students you're talking about reaches the millions. Mm -hmm. And so as people are thinking about what kind of work they what kind of work they want to do and what kind of impact they want to have, right? It's I think it's worth thinking about. Right, realizing that there's impact on individual students, but there's also the reach you have in terms of students and to make the decision that that makes sense for you. And I was lucky enough at SRI to be able to do a bit of both. And now I've chosen to go to um, Houghton Mifflin where I'm doing more the latter, making a relatively small impact for each student, but over massive numbers of students. Not, of course, the only impact that learning scientists can have. Some intentionally are creating things. People are creating things they don't expect to have any impact for 20 years out. And at that point, it might revolutionize science or math education, which is fine as well. So, you know, I'm talking about for people who want to have that sort of immediate classroom impact in particular, not to put that against other forms of impact. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um... Well, thank you so much, Phil. It's just been so fun talking with you. And uh, I lo really look forward to how your work at Houghton Mifflin shapes the kinds of curriculum materials that get into classrooms. And I'm excited that learning sciences has a seat at the table when you're thinking mm -hmm. about how these representations, you know, get designed. Because um, I think we, we do have a lot um, of work in the field that can really shape learning for the better. So yes. thank you for taking the time. Well, thank you for taking time and talking to me. I appreciate it. It's been fun. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> I'd love to hear what you took away from this conversation and connections that you see to your own work. Send us an email at humanslspod at gmail.com and find us on Twitter at humanslspod. This podcast is co-produced by Andrew Kurzak and Monlin Monica Cope. Our work is made possible by the Learning Sciences Research Institute at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you for listening. <laughs>